through 20. The word of the Lord. All things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united with a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Donnery. I know that's your favorite passage in the whole Bible. <laughs> well, this is the second in our uh, series for the new year. Uh, we're taking, for five weeks, we're in a series called A New Creation. We have a, um, a communal art piece that we're kind of building throughout this series. And so if at some point today during the communion or afterwards, if you feel like um, gluing a, a butterfly up, to, up on that, we will enjoy that and continue to grow that through the series. What we're doing this during this series is we're taking one of the four readings from the Revised Common Lectionary to guide our uh, sermons for this week, uh, for, for this season. The Revised Common Lectionary is, uh, is, is a collection of four daily readings, especially on Sundays, that follow a three-year cycle that um, uh, take the reader through the vast majority of the Bible in over three-year period, and uh, and we join as Heather said last week. You know what a joy it is to be in worship when so many other people are are also in worship um, around the world. Um, we take that even a step further when we follow the lectionary, as hundreds or tens of thousands of churches around the world also are reading the same text, and so that's a wonderful gift. Last week we were reminded. Uh, of, um, from the creation story, the original create, the first creation account, we were reminded what a gift it is to be human, uh, to be part of God's creation. Um, and uh, there was a, a little bit of a nod toward the baptism of Jesus, the New Testament lesson. And we think about the incarnation of God. This is where God takes this understanding of it's good to be human and he doubles down on it. Uh, we hadn't done such a good job being human on our own. And so God says, I'm going to come and be as one of you and show the way because it is so important and so sacred to be human. So he enters into the drama as one of us, and in his baptism, he identifies with us in our need, and in our baptism, we, uh, we take on his identity. 
And so at the beginning of a new year, it's always a good time to remember our baptism, that we are made new in Christ. There is a new creation that we are being redeemed, and every new year is a fresh start, an opportunity uh, to say yes again. It turns out that it's still good to be human. Well, Paul, uh, in our reading for today, he takes this um, even further and gives us a robust understanding of the human body, a theology of the human body. And he wants to answer a couple really important questions for us. Does my body matter to God? Um, and even more than that, does the physical realm, uh, does the material world matter to God and thus my body? And uh, depending on your answer to that question, then how should I treat my body and the bodies of others? It's interesting that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a church that Paul started, and halfway through the first century, um, he's leaving Ephesus, and he's hearing about these behavior problems going on in the church in Corinth, and he writes a letter to them to deal with these behavior problems. Um, And uh, Corinth, you know, was Paul's problem child. There were so many issues. It was the most dysfunctional church family um, probably in the history of the church. Maybe there's been more since then. But anyway, the church had had, um, devolved into cliques and power grabs. People were suing each other in the church. There was gross sexual immorality all over the place in very public ways. Um, And uh, many members of the church, to top it all off, didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Other than that, the church was doing just fine. (laughs) It was Paul's problem in dealing with a behavior issue uh, to rise above the level of mere ethical advice and to enter into the realm of theological principle. And that's what he's doing in our text today. He wanted to shape their worldview and their hearts and their understanding that would then flow into the kind of behavior that was consistent with the gospel um, and the resurrection of Jesus. So when he was seeking to settle a quarrel between two women at the church in Corinth, he did this by uh, telling them to take on the mind which they already had in Christ Jesus. Have the mind that is in you in Christ Jesus. And out of that, then you can work on your relationship. When he was writing to the Corinthians in another place to be more generous in their giving, he appeals to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our passage for today, the particular problem that Paul is dealing with, the behavior problem, was one of sexual immorality. Specifically, there were apparently men in the church that didn't have any problem going around and visiting prostitutes. Um, and without any remorse or without any repentance. And all of this was based on a faulty logic. The logic was we're no longer under the law, so therefore we can do whatever we want. All things are permissible for me. And, uh, and all things are lawful. We're not saved by the law. We're saved by grace. So as the New Living Translation puts it, I'm allowed to do anything. This was a problem that was particular to Corinth. 
Corinth was a seaport town. It had all the vices of any seaport town, except that they were all concentrated in one place because Corinth was literally the crossroads of the ancient world. So many different philosophies, pagan philosophies, so many different religions, different ways of life, different ways of understanding the human body and how we treat it and how, what we do with it. <clears throat> Besides, there were no legal restraints to any kind of sexual behavior. So Paul first goes after the logic, the thinking pattern. Instead of offering some mild ethical advice, telling people just be good, please be good, he gets to the root underneath the behavior. And here's the key verse. The body is not meant for fornication or sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. See, many of the Corinthians seem to think that um, since our bodies are part of the physical world, the material world, um, and the sexual activities that we engage in don't have any moral or salvific um, consequence. They don't have, they're not very significant since in the end, uh, God will destroy both one and the other. That is, since God will ultimately destroy the physical material elements of the world, they thought it doesn't really matter how people treat their bodies and what we do with them. This is precisely the logic that Paul wants to correct. You see, long before Paul, there was Plato. And Plato's ideas shaped the Western world uh, the entire Greco-Roman world and the Western world that we know today. Uh, and Plato taught contrary to the Hebrew imagination and the Hebrew understanding, Plato taught that there's a clear distinction between the physical world and the spiritual world. Um, Plato taught that not only is there a distinction between these two things, but even more that, uh, that the material world was bad and the physical world and the spiritual world is good. Body and soul were incompatible enemies. Matter and spirit were at great odds with each other. And matter was seen as corrupt, decayable, and thus bad or evil. Spirit is uncorruptible, not decayable, eternal, therefore it must be good. The rationale for this was the belief that while physical things pass away, spiritual things seem to last forever. Therefore, physical things don't have any significance while spiritual things have eternal significance. This faulty logic has always been the basis for abuse of the human body as well as sexual immorality of every kind. If you believe in the sacredness of the body, you don't use it for sexual indulgence or instant gratification. This way of thinking, this platonic way of thinking was known as dualism. And as much as Paul radically challenged this way, this dualistic understanding um, in the world, as much as he tried to challenge that, it nevertheless continued to plague Western civilization in the Western world that we know today. And it has made its way in the church and even our most mundane attitudes. It's almost impossible to 
escape for Western people. The church has been plagued with not only disparaging attitudes of the body, but even shame around the human body throughout millennial, throughout millennia. Um, really only the Eastern traditions have seemed to escape this. Even Presbyterians, without necessarily disparaging the body, just seem to ignore it, at least in worship. We don't know what to do with our bodies. You know, we, just, we have to think about that for a while first. In my observation, uh, this is way worse for men than it is for women, this relationship with the body. Men, we tend to know how to either thrash our bodies or ignore them. The last thing we know how to do is to listen to them. My wife always says, listen to your body. But the only thing that I know how to do is mind over matter. Which one of these phrases reflects a Platonic dualism? And which one ref reflects a Hebraic singularity? Listen to your body. There's a wholeness in that phrase. Mind over matter, that's dualism. You see how these phrases creep up into our lives and our philosophy today. The late Franciscan history professor Larry Landini, uh, he spent years and years teaching seminarians church history before sending them out as priests into the world. And before he would send them out at the end of their time in church history, he would always say, and this was back in the 60s, he would always say this to his class, just remember, on the practical level, the Christian church was much more influenced by Plato than it was by Jesus. This is sad because for Paul, the most enduring and persistent reality in his thinking and his living was that God not only created our bodies, but also by raising the body of Jesus Christ, he confirmed how much he values the human body. And so that's why in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body, which was second century, Pauline. It doesn't say I believe in the resurrection of the spirit or the resurrection of the soul or the resurrection of the mind. I believe in the resurrection of the body. No one, Paul thought, who understands the good news of the resurrection would suppose that our bodies are insignificant. Again, God raised the Lord and will raise us too by his power. That's why Paul says, your body is a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. The good news of the resurrection is that we, like Jesus Christ, will be redeemed in our body, soul, and spirit. It's easy to forget this. It's easy to, uh, to find fault with our bodies whether the appearance of them, their fitness level, the illnesses that our bodies carry, or even their basic functionality. Um, <clears throat> author and theologian Barbara Brown Taylor, she says something interesting in one of her books. She says this, I can say that I think it is important to pray naked in front of a full-length mirror sometimes especially when you're full of loathing for your body. Maybe you think you're too heavy. Maybe you have never liked the way your hip bones stick out. Do your breasts sag? Are you too hairy? It's always something. 
Then again, maybe you've been sick or have come through some surgery that has changed the way you look. You've gotten glimpses of your body as you've bathed or changed clothes, but so far maintaining your equilibrium has, dependent, has been dependent on staying covered up as much as you can. You've even discovered how to shower in the dark so that you may have to feel what you presently loathe about yourself while not having to look at it. This can only go on for so long, especially for someone who officially believes that God loves flesh and blood, no matter what kind of shape it's in. Whether you're sick or well, lovely or irregular, there comes a time when it's vitally important for your spiritual health to drop your clothes, look in the mirror, and say, here I am. This is the body like no other that my life has shaped. I live here. This is my soul's address. And after you've taken a good look around, you may decide that there's actually a lot to be thankful for, all things considered. Bodies take real beatings. That they heal from most things is an underrated miracle. That they give birth is beyond reckoning. We tend to forget this, and we tend to concern ourselves with, what, with what's wrong with our bodies, with what's not good enough with them, or how we can use them for our own instant gratification or indulgence. In her book, Mudhouse Sabbath, author and Duke professor Lauren Winner devotes a chapter to the body. Um, why is it always women who write about the body? Uh, isn't that interesting? There are no men who have these great books like this. She writes this, Though I believe God has something to say about human bodies, I generally tune God out and listen to Cosmopolitan instead. The magazines and movies, TV shows, and advertising campaigns speak of bodies that are both too important and not important at all. Scripture speaks of bodies that God created in his image, bodies that are both doing redemptive work and being redeemed. Both doing redemptive work and being redeemed. So how do we love our bodies? How do we steward our bodies as the temples of the Holy Spirit without um, falling into vanity or self-obsession? The last thing we want is to be like Narcissus who stares at his reflection in the pool and the pond for the rest of existence. How do, we, uh, uh, how do, how do our bodies engage in redemptive work? Maybe part of the answer to this question is simply that our bodies participate in the work of redemption when we care for and serve the bodies of others. This is how we glorify God in our bodies. We use them to care for the bodies of homeless who are living in tents in the snow right now. On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we remember the, the bodies, the many, many, many black bodies that were brutalized and beaten during nonviolent marches and protests in the civil rights movement. And we continue to speak for the protection of black bodies and all bodies. We affirm the bodies and identities of people of all ages in the LGBTQ community and we refuse to contribute to any message of shame. 
We wonder what we can do for the bodies in places like the Kibera slum in Kenya. We pray for the healing of bodies with illness within our own community. We fight against the sexual trafficking of young bodies. And we refrain from participating in systems that exploit human bodies, including sexual indulgence of any kind. Paul says flee sexual immorality, flee fornication. The word there is porneia. And that's where we get our word for pornography. Uh, We refuse to participate in a system that exploits the human body for capitalist purposes, whether pornography or prostitution or the like. Author and naturalist uh, Diane Ackerman has a wonderful book called The Natural History of the Senses. It's a fascinating book. Um, She collects information from around the world, both historical and contemporary, and she organizes this book around the five senses, touch, taste, smell, hearing, and vision. Um, And she shows us uh, throughout kind of history how humans and cultures have used the senses, have thought about and cultivated and even ritualized the the senses of the body. She says that we live in a sense luscious creation. Even more, she helps us to see that we are creatures of the sense. Our physical bodies have amazing capacities and sensitivities and sensibilities, and we can interact with the world around us in ways that are so much deeper through our bodies than through any kind of dualism or the mind only. She writes this, we like to think that we are finely evolved creatures in suit and tie or pantyhose and chemise, who live millennia and mental, many millennia and mental detours away from the cave. But that's not something our bodies are convinced of. We still perceive the world in all its gushing beauty and terror right on our pulses. There's no other way. We begin to understand the consciousness. To begin to understand the consciousness, we must try to understand the senses how they evolved, how they can be extended, what their limits are, what they can teach us about the ravishing world we have the privilege to inhabit. To understand, we have to use our minds, but most people think of the mind as being located in the head. But the latest findings in physiology suggest that the mind doesn't really dwell in the brain, but travels the whole body on caravans of hormone and enzyme, busily making sense of the compound wonders we catalog as touch, taste, smell, hearing, and vision. In other words, there's a body memory, there's a body knowledge within us. With all our senses at work in astounding ways all the time, it seems foolish to think that our bodies are not meant to put us in touch with God and God's creation. It seems foolish to think that our bodies are insignificant and can be treated um, as though they're disposable. Isn't it through the senses that, that God has given us that we're able to relate to God and connect to God? Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. How sweet are your words 
to my lips, sweeter like sweeter than honey on my mouth. And not only in moments of immediate sensory perception do we connect with God, but also the images and the metaphors that we use for God come from an embodied experience. Jesus used the word Abba, which means daddy, to, uh, to refer as a metaphor, as an image to refer to his creator. And that is an embodied experience for someone who had a daddy named Joseph. Um, and it was the word that could describe the intimacy that he could have with the father. We use words that come with an embodied experience and they resonate with us. In a book entitled Embodied Care, um, author Maurice Hamilton argues that through the complex capacities of our senses, our bodies can connect us to people who experience hunger, though their hunger is different from our own. Those whose particular pain we may not know, those whose suffering is foreign to us, and those whose exhaustion uh, exceeds our experience. Through our own embodied experience, we can imagine the intensity of love that a mother has for a child, the intensity that people have for their families, the protective instincts that propel people to act when their loved ones are at risk or in danger, the survival instincts that kick in when life and livelihood are threatened. Because of our embodied experiences, we can have compassion for others. I believe that's where our empathy is stored. We can have um, compassion for strangers whose situations we have no idea. So Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And it's one spirit. And so it's no question then that we would have compassion for others who suffer in the body. It's the same spirit communicating to us from one to another. When I think about how our bodies were created and how they were endowed with this amazing capacity with these five senses, how we can cultivate compassion for people through a greater engagement of our senses, I begin to think new ways of what it means that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It just opens up entire new uh, doorways to think about. The Holy Spirit dwells within our bodies and from that locus proceeds forth actively to bind together all God's world. This means that God has invested salvific significance in our bodies. Rather than being irrelevant to the work of redemption, God has created our bodies to be the precious means through which God would bring redemption to the world. And we look forward to the day, especially uh, when we think about the limitations of our human body, when our bodies will be restored and resurrected and made whole once again. So let's take care of our bodies and without making them into idols, as Jesus gave away his body on the cross so that your body and mine could be redeemed. Let us do likewise and give ourselves away for the good of the world. 
God, we thank you for these, these bodies in all their beauties, in all their limitations. God, there is so much shame that we have even just to imagine praying in front of a mirror naked. We know our shame. Lord, help us uh, to treat our bodies as, as you treat them, to understand that they are sacred, that they're meant to be used for your redemption. Help us to glorify you in our body as we remember, as we remember the Heidelberg Catechism, what is our only comfort in life and death, that we belong in body and soul, not to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.